I'm Danny Stover, and this is Today in TO, a podcast that takes a look at the biggest stories in the city and connects the dots on what's going on. Oh, and after you're done with the dots, could you please return them so that they can be used again? Thanks. On today's episode, Toronto just moved to a new recycling system with the aim to improve recycling rates by putting more of the onus on the source, the companies who produce the products and packaging in the first place. You might not notice a big difference as you place your bin at the curb, but you'll learn why these new regulations don't go nearly far enough. Also, there's a company in Toronto that's closing the gap between food waste and food insecurity. And when someone can use the words circular and sustainable solution to surplus food recovery in a sentence, I'm listening. Plus, Toronto's formal garbage collection began in the 1860s. And back then, the average household produced 40% more garbage than it does now. You want to know why? It was because of all that ash. Seriously, though, there was a lot of ash. That's all coming up on Today in T.O. Toronto just became one of the first cities in Ontario to move to a new recycling program under a province-wide regulation. This is to improve recycling rates by putting more of the responsibility on the source, the companies who produce the products and packaging in the first place. Now, on the outset, you probably won't notice a big difference as you drop your blue box off at the curb filled with clear plastics, single-use packaging, cans, and bottles with a hope and a prayer that it gets to where it needs to go. But according to Emily Alfred, senior waste campaigner with the Toronto Environmental Alliance, or T, one of the reasons for these regulation changes is because for the past decade, recycling rates across Toronto and the province have been decreasing. So about 10 years ago, Ontario's recycling rate was about 66%, you know, 65%. And the most recent numbers for the whole province is now down to 53%. So there's been a trend that recycling is getting harder and harder to do and that less material is getting recycled. Now, one reason this is happening is that over the last 10 years, we're actually getting a lot more plastic packaging in our recycling bins. So the recycling bins used to be a lot more paper, newspapers, magazines, cardboard, uh, glass and metal. And over the years, there's been less paper and a lot more plastic. Plastic is more expensive to recycle, it's more complicated to recycle, and a lot of it just isn't recyclable in the first place. So as packaging has become more complicated, municipalities who have been legally required to collect recycling from all of their residents have seen their costs of recycling go up and up and up. So the new provincial regulation will take the cost and responsibility off the municipality and shifts the onus to the companies who make the packaging and products in the first place. So now it'll be their responsibility to make sure that the packaging they put on the market gets collected, gets uh, recycled and sorted, and they have to prove that it actually got recycled. And they pay the full cost of that. So this reduces costs for municipalities. And in an ideal world, this system creates an incentive for those companies to rethink their packaging or reduce, reduce it or redesign it. Sounds like a plan, but why are recycling rates dropping? The reason recycling rates are going down is because packaging is getting more complicated and it's confusing. 
So one thing that a lot of people don't realize or maybe don't think about is that the blue box, so you know, Torontonians understand this, we all have a blue bin at home where you put recyclables in and it gets collected each week. Now, all the materials that you're putting in that blue box are packaging. So it's boxes that packaged food products, it's bottles, it's containers, it's tubs, or sometimes it's like plastic films. All of those materials are packages. As packaging has gotten more complicated, as companies have chosen to use more complicated packaging uh, types of plastics, maybe multi-layered materials, those are really hard to recycle, the cost of recycling has gone up. One of the reasons why it's so confusing is something that this extended producer responsibility regulation hopes to address. While municipalities are required by law to recycle materials, they all adhere to different rules based on their own unique capacities, like what can we recycle at our local recycling facility? What can our machines handle sorting through? Where can we sell this material once it's bundled up to, you know, to sell to someone who might turn it into something new? So now when companies have to pay the cost of recycling, they're going to have the same rules everywhere. Every municipality in Ontario is going to have the same system. And that will help reduce a lot of the confusion that we're seeing now between different municipalities. Now, of course, if the producers are paying more, won't that make the items more expensive? Well, that's not really the point. It's not about tacking on a fee per se or increasing the cost of doing business. It's about rethinking the ways companies deliver products and creating incentives to do better. When a company has to pay the full life cycle cost of what they put on the market, the idea is that they should be incorporating the cost of that recycling and life cycle management into the cost of doing business. And it may get passed on to the consumer, but it's not passed on to the general public. So if you think about it, you know, companies have to pay for labor, they have to pay for rent for their factories, they have to pay for trucks and delivery, they have to pay for insurance. All of those costs are just the cost of doing business. And we think that the environmental cost and the end of life management of what they put on the market should also just be one more cost of doing business. So while it may increase the cost, the goal or the hope is that by making companies bear that responsibility, they now have an incentive to start thinking about their packaging choices. Until now, a company can say, you know, maybe they used to sell something in a can. Metal is infinitely recyclable. It's a great quality material in terms of recycling. It's got a high value. They might switch to a plastic container. That plastic container is completely not recyclable or, you know, maybe like a stand-up pouch that has like a little zip at the top. Those are impossible to recycle because there's so many different types of plastic in it. They could switch to a new type of packaging with no consequences at all, even though this creates a big headache for the municipalities who have to collect that recycling. Uh, it causes more waste and landfill. It's got all other sorts of environmental consequences. So this concept of making producers responsible for what they design and put on the market is meant to give them an incentive to uh, think about reducing their packaging, um, increasing the recyclability, making it easier to collect, and uh, you know to maybe redesign it, to choose things that are easier and more affordable to collect. Extended producer responsibility and holding producers responsible is, is part of a larger um, shift in how we deal with resources that can move us towards zero waste. It's not the only solution. You know, recycling isn't going to solve all of our problems, but making companies responsible for the cost of recycling and managing the materials they put on the market is an important part of shifting away from excess waste. Is extended producer responsibility something that's working in other places? Extended producer responsibility has been a concept that's been around for a long time. Uh, European countries have had this for a while. No one's really got it perfectly right yet. There's, there's been um, 
you know, in BC, for example, they've had something called Recycle BC is an agency that represents all the producers and they provide all the recycling collection, processing and management for the whole province of BC. So it's not managed by municipalities. It's, it's managed by this agency that represents producers. Ontario system on the books, like on paper, this regulation called the Resource Recovery and Circular Economy Act, you know, very lofty name was passed by the previous Liberal government, and it took years to complete this regulation. One of the concerns we have is that as it rolled out under the Ford government, uh, there was a lot of sort of shifts and watering down of the regulation. So it sounds great on paper, but once producers and companies got in the same room with the government and started pushing to weaken the regulations, to lower the targets, to make it a little bit more friendly to their interests, We've actually seen that this new regulation won't have the intended effect that producer responsibility really can have. Hmm. Why am I not surprised the Ford government watered something down when pressured by lobbying businesses? And remember, under these new regulations, companies are required to prove that a certain percentage of the materials that they put on the market got collected, processed, and actually recycled into new materials. So what is the certain percentage? So for example, um, when it comes to paper and cardboard, they'll need to show that they recycled 80% of what was put on the market. Unfortunately, when it comes to things like plastic, that recycling rate is as, as low as 50% for rigid plastics and down to 25% for flexible plastics. So this means a company that makes their product and sells it in a flexible plastic package, like a pouch or a plastic bag, can let 75% of that material go to landfill, go to incinerator, go into the environment. It doesn't matter. We don't, we're not actually requiring them to collect more than 25% of what they put on the market. So switching to this new system is our opportunity to transform it, to say, okay, let's create a new recycling system that's really effective at collection, that um, helps weed out those unrecyclable materials and moves us towards a more effective circular economy. But the way that these targets have been lowered and lowered, and this target of 25% collection for flexible plastics doesn't even start till 2026. So this means for the next, you know, until 2029, when the rate goes up to 40%, we're still going to have piles of this flexible plastic floating around, and it's going to be no one's job to collect it except municipalities and the public who are going to have to pick up the tab for all this excess packaging. It's almost like these low targets actually incentivize companies to go with cheaper, less eco-friendly options. For example, if you sold a product in a cardboard box, you as the producer would be responsible for ensuring that 80% of that box is recycled. If you sold that same product in flexible plastic, it may be cheaper and your collection target is only 25%. Right now, by the way, targets in Ontario for these types of plastic is 10%. And the pushback from companies is, well, how are we going to get this up to 25% when it's currently only 10? Wow, we're pointing out a major failure of our existing recycling system and using that as an excuse to still aim really low. I think if we can only collect 10% of flexible plastics in the existing recycling system, let's transform it and aim for much more. And, you know, EPR to really work, you got to hold producers to high targets. These pervasive incentives due to low targets aren't the only loopholes. Buyer beware of buzzy words like biodegradable and compostable packaging. In an effort to become green or to look green to their customers, some companies are now switching to compostable plastics or so-called compostable plastics. So they'll, they'll switch to a container and say, oh, this package is 100% compostable. Unfortunately, 
the term compostable, biodegradable, or bioplastic, those aren't actually regulated terms in Canada. And that doesn't actually mean it's compostable. So this is a real problem. A lot of municipalities are saying, we don't want this stuff. In the city of Toronto, the city does not accept compostable packaging, compostable plastics in the green bin because the city's sophisticated composting green bin process is too fast for most of this stuff to break down. But companies can keep selling it and promoting it to get more sales, even though municipalities don't actually collect and compost this. Now, the gap in the provincial blue box regulation is if a company makes compostable packaging, they're not held to any targets at all. All they have to do is report to the government, here's how much compostable packaging I put on the market. And they're not required to show that they collected it, that they composted it, or they did anything with it. So in a perfect world, well, in a perfect world, I guess there would be no use for these types of regulations. But let's blue sky this. What do advocates like Emily want to see? We want to see higher targets. First of all, I'll just say that, you know, higher targets. In fact, um, environmental groups have called for a 100% target. Producers should be responsible for all the packaging they put on the market. Uh, they should have to collect and recycle as much as possible. And whatever they don't collect and recycle is going to a municipal landfill. They should have to compensate municipalities for the cost of managing that. So we want really high targets that actually pushes them and gives them a reason to change as quickly as possible. The other thing we want is bans. So if if a company can't prove that their packaging and their products can get recycled or composted safely and effectively, why should they be allowed to sell it in Ontario? They shouldn't. If it's not recyclable, it's not compostable, it's just garbage. And they should not be allowed to sell it because they can switch to other readily available recyclable and compostable alternatives. For example, at the federal level right now, we have six single-use plastics that are going to be banned starting in December. Those materials were chosen because they keep showing up in the environment and they're not readily recyclable and there are alternatives. Another aspect of this would be to improve collection systems. Ugh. If only there was a good example of this. You actually can reach really high recycling targets in Ontario is when we look at not even at, at what's happening in another jurisdiction, but what's happening right here with deposit return systems for alcohol containers. Deposits are placed on every beer, wine and spirit bottle. And the beer store collects 75% uh, of wine and spirit bottles and almost 80% of all beer containers are collected and returned to the beer store. The great thing about a deposit system is that you get really high collection rates. You also get really clean recycling because all the materials are sorted and organized and they're not smashed in with a whole bunch of other dirty recyclables. So you get higher quality recycling, you get higher rates of recycling. And most of all, you're actually facilitating the opportunity for reuse. So when it comes to beer bottles, if you know the, the brown beer bottles that like some of the major beer companies use, they've got like a paper label on them. Those in Ontario actually have a 99% return rate. So it's like almost 99% recycling, but it's not even recycling. They're, they're sterilized and reused and refilled up to a dozen times for each bottle. So that's the kind of zero-way circular economy we want to see. This is a deposit return system that works across the whole province. It's proven to be affordable and effective. It's cost-effective. And those containers are used so many times, they've got a way smaller footprint than any one-way recyclable or compostable packaging. You may have heard recently that a non-alcoholic beverage return initiative was put on pause. Now, this would have seen an eco-fee, not a refundable fee, tacked on to every beverage container at the point of sale. 
Currently, Ontario is one of only two provinces that doesn't have a full deposit return system for non-alcoholic drink containers. So if you're thinking, well, if these big producers won't reduce their carbon footprint, then what hope do I have? I'm just one person. You, at some point in the day, at many points during the day, you'll have something in your hand and you need to figure out, does this go in the recycling, the garbage, organics, or somewhere else? So everyone can understand waste as an environmental issue. Everyone can take action on reducing waste, reducing how they manage things, you know, trying to keep things in use for a bit longer, making sure they sort it properly. So it's a really valuable, you know, it's it's a meaningful way that we can all take action to do more for the environment. Um, it's also, you know, as a gateway issue, I really like that it kind of opens a window onto these bigger systems. Because as much as we can do individually and as much as we should do individually, Ultimately, these systems are huge, and there's a lot of complex things going on behind the scenes, and there are a lot of very sophisticated companies and policymakers and waste companies that understand this, and we should be pushing them to make the system work better for us. Companies have spent a lot of money and a lot of years convincing us that you know excess packaging is litter, and it's our fault, and it's our consumer choice to vote with our dollars for what kind of products we want and what kind of packaging we want. But we can't guilt people when they're buying, you know, the, the type of cat food I buy for my cat comes in a stand-up laminated pouch that isn't recyclable. But I don't have an option to call that company and tell them to sell it to me in another way. I don't think that would happen. Major companies have spent lots of money investigating and researching different types of packaging, and they choose what they think sells their product. They don't really think about what happens after it gets off the shelf. So let's change the system to make it easy for everyone. Finally, is it time that maybe we revamp the three R's? Reduce, reuse, and recycle? After this conversation, I might add responsibility. I'd add refill to it or, you know, rethink. Um, the main problem with our, our effort so far is that we always focus on the recycle. And it's, it's supposed to be reduce, reuse, recycle in that order. So do we really need this one-way throwaway packaging? Or do we really need this product? Or could we reduce it or redesign it so that it's not it doesn't become waste. Are there ways that we can reuse it? And then at the end of life, hopefully a very long life with many uses, can this be recycled? So with so much focus on recycling, which helps you know, make a really quick high sales system for companies, we've, we've lost focus on the real, the order of the three R's. That was Emily Alfred, Senior Waste Campaigner with the Toronto Environmental Alliance. Coming up, you'll hear about the Toronto man who a few years ago found himself dealing with food insecurity himself. Now he's on a mission to redistribute 100% of surplus food waste across the country by 2030. Find out how after this. You have reduce, reuse, recycle, responsibility, refill, rethink. And I think we can add another three R's to this. Rescue, redistribute, and recourse. Approximately one in five households in Toronto live in food insecurity. Food insecurity is defined as a lack of consistent access to enough food to live an active, healthy life. There's a study from the Canadian Medical Association Journal and it found that children and teens in food insecure homes were 55% more likely to visit the emergency room and are admitted to hospital for mental health issues more often than those who have adequate access to food. 
This study took data from 2005 to 2014. So given what's been going on more recently with the pandemic and inflation, it's probably much worse now. In fact, the most recent Stats Canada numbers show that more than 18% of Canadians said they were food insecure in 2021, and that was up from 15.7% in 2020. It's now 2023, where you can't even look at a grocery store without dropping at least 50 bucks. According to the Daily Bread and North York Harvest Annual Who's Hungry report, food bank visits in Toronto from April 2021 to March of 2022 were up 16% year over year. When the report came out in November, it showed that Toronto food banks in the past year had hit nearly 2 million visits. So the problem is real. And its impact is far-reaching. But you may have noticed the theme of this episode is waste. And right now, approximately 3.2 metric tons of surplus edible food is produced in Canada each year. 96% of this surplus is never rescued or redistributed. Tony Colley is the founder behind Be One to Give. And you'll hear how it works in just a moment. But so far, the Toronto company has diverted approximately 15,000 kilograms of food waste, which is enough to feed 25,000 people since its inception in 2019. According to the United Nations Food and Agriculture Association, it's estimated that every pound of food thrown away results in nearly four pounds of methane gas. Certainly, there's work to be done to ensure that people can afford to buy their own food and aren't reliant on these apps, for example. But a good idea is a good idea. And the mission at Be One to Give, quite simply, is to close the gap between surplus food and food insecurity across the country. And when you can use the words circular and sustainable solution to surplus food recovery in a sentence, I'm listening. Here's how Tony came up with the idea behind Be One to Give. In 2016, I found myself on social assistance and food insecure after a 23-year career. This was uh, 16 years in corporate finance, four years in fundraising. And on the weekends, I was working in event production for 20 years. So I pretty lucrative career, didn't anticipate ending up being on social assistance or food insecure. But through that, uh, I had, of course, find other employment. And the first job I found was with a local caterer in the city. On my very first event, we had over 100 box lunches left over. I was food insecure. So I, of course, took a few home for myself and I redistributed the surplus to a nearby shelter. And I did that for about a year and a half until one day I couldn't rescue all the food, decided to purchase a food delivery bag to make the process easier and immediately saw an opportunity to build a more circular and sustainable solution to surplus food recovery. I love the way that sounds. Circular and sustainable solution to surplus food recovery. So how does it actually work. We are essentially an on-demand B2B delivery app for food business operators along the supply chain that have surplus food at the end of the day. So we operate similar to, to Uber Eats or DoorDash, those types of food delivery platforms. However, we leverage technology and logistics to deliver that surplus food to food insecure communities within two hours of receipt. Once a retailer signs up to the app, they will be able to place an order whenever they have surplus food. So instead of it being in the consumer's hands, we give the retailers the complete tools to eliminate surplus food in their daily operations. So when a retailer signs up to the platform, they set up a profile, that profile is fed to us. 
Uh, and then once their profile is active, we give them the onboarding training program so they understand exactly how to use the service. They place an order in the app, that notification comes to us, we dispatch a driver, that driver is typically on site within an hour of that order being placed. And then whatever that food is, is, is collected, it's redistributed up to the community, uh, to one of our partner agencies within that particular location. Our target customers are grocery stores, hotels, convention centers, event venues, caterers. We try to stay away from restaurants at this point simply because there are so many restaurants and they're already bombarded with a lot of delivery apps. We wanna make sure that uh, the companies that we're targeting are producing food in bulk. So when you go to a grocery store, there are hot food counters. Most of that food at the end of the day is disposed of simply because it's unsold. Similar with a hotel at the end of their events, any surplus product they have left over from their banquets um, or weddings and so forth, all of that food ends up in the garbage simply because there's no recourse. We have now provided them with solution to eliminate that. Some of the recipients of this program are the African Food Basket, Fred Victor, and Homes First, among others. And the B1 to Give team does all of that rescuing and has a goal to redistribute 100% of avoidable food waste across Canada by 2030. A pretty lofty goal. So, they must have a huge team, right? Right now we have five people on staff. I have three uh, full-time staff, all women of color, and I have uh, three drivers. Well, four, including myself. Uh, so I have four drivers that are actively uh, driving around the city, collecting food, both in Toronto and Oakville. So we are almost uh, GTA wide. We're hoping mm -hmm. to activate up north, of course, in the Peel region and out uh, in the Durham region as well. That again was Tony Colley, the founder of Be One to Give. For more information, head to be1togive.ca. That's the letter B followed by the number 12, give.ca. Now, did you know that Toronto's formal garbage collection began in the 1860s? And you'll never guess why. Also, back then, the average Toronto household produced 40% more garbage than it does now. You know why? Because of all that ash. Producer Glenn Bergonier has more. So the main reason why Toronto began formal garbage collection wasn't simply due to the mounds of filth, rotting meat, and other forms of garbage that were piling up in the streets. Instead, it was to better address a newly developing sense of hygiene after Toronto was plagued by multiple epidemics in a very short span, including typhus and cholera. For those who just need this bit of information, cholera is an acute diarrheal infection that can ultimately lead to kidney failure and other life-threatening complications when left untreated. It is passed when individuals swallow contaminated food or water, which was a lot of Toronto's water supply at the time since sewer waste was bled directly into Lake Ontario until 1912. And so, after the cholera break was more or less contained, the city began to get a better handle on its waste problems as more and more people were making the connection between garbage rotting in public spaces to diseases such as cholera. Informal garbage pickups began as early as 1834 and was largely just city officials traveling streets and removing garbage that residents chucked out. And so Toronto entered its first garbage crisis as chosen dump sites around the city were quickly filling up. By 1860, formal city garbage-run collection began, but this only further contributed to the still-growing volume of trash and the problem of what to do with it. So, what was decided? Largely, it was simply burned in massive incinerators since it was believed at the time that fire would completely eradicate disease-breeding matter. And so, the first municipal incinerator was opened and completed in 1890 on Eastern Avenue at the Don River. Although this practice was continued for decades to come, it failed to address the ongoing garbage crisis since by 1900, 
that's only 10 years after the first incinerator opened, ash was becoming the new problem. As the city was running out of places to put it, it was largely being deposited either into the harbor, much of the surrounding ravines, and even Christie Pits, a now popular park by the intersection of Christie and Bloor Street. There was also the massive problem and danger of these garbage dumps catching fire because people would also toss out household garbage such as wood, cardboard, and textiles mixed in with coal ash from their furnaces. Fun fact, like Danny mentioned just a few moments ago, households back then produced on average 40% more garbage by weight than we do in this modern day. And this was largely contributed to just ash. And that does not even address the problem that all the municipal incinerators that were operating were essentially operating at max capacity with more and more garbage piling up, which led to more and more ash and less and less places to put it and so forth. Garbage dumps around the city continued to fill, politicians scrambled to find solutions, and medical experts worried more and more about the adverse effects the noxious smoke from these incinerators were having on the surrounding air quality. And these incinerators were almost exclusively used until 1967, when the Metropolitan Toronto government took complete responsibility for garbage disposal, closed all but one incinerator, and began to establish massive landfills just outside of city limits. And this solution worked, for a brief time, until once again, surrounding landfills began to reach upper limits. And now, back in modern times, we face very much the same problems from 140 years ago, and garbage still presents a very clear and present problem to the city. There's too much garbage and absolutely nowhere to put it. It's actually become such a big issue that the city is, once again, exploring the return of these incinerators, amongst other ideas. So as bad as garbage problems in the city can be now, and if you've ever seen any of the city garbage bins that are seemingly almost always overflowing and surrounded by litter, you know that it's pretty bad. But just remember, at one point, basically everything was burned if not tossed into the streets or simply dumped in the lake, which would have left a, let's politely call it ripe, scent to permeate through the air in the city and taint our main water supply. Hey, thanks for listening to this garbage episode. I hope you didn't waste your time. Yep, I, I heard it too. I'll stop. This podcast is brought to you by 640 Toronto and features audio from shows across the Chorus Entertainment Network. My name's Danny Stover. Today in TO is produced by me, Glenn Bergonier, and David Spargala. Amanda Capito, Jason Chapman, and Chris Dunner are advisors to the show. Join me again next week for a fresh new app. And if you're bored waiting, why not try giving this pod a five-star review? I believe in you. Till then, reduce, reuse, recycle, or can it? Bye for now.